Good morning, everyone. For your information, next Sunday, May 10th, we will continue doing what we are doing now. That is, until you hear differently, we will not gather for worship at our church building. One thing that helps me as I get going and recording a message is to visualize your faces and where you usually sit. It actually calms me down and encourages me greatly to know that your hunger to know God and his word motivates your worship. That has been one of the most special things about Evangelical Fellowship, and I hope that continues today as we dive back into 1 Corinthians. Let's pray. O Lord, work in our hearts and minds now what you know each of us needs from your word today, that we might grow in our love for you and one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, after a month in other parts of the scriptures, we return today to our series in 1 Corinthians. Today, we're in the middle of chapter 15, verses 29 through 34. Now, so far in chapter 15, the Apostle Paul has strongly admonished the Corinthians concerning the importance and absolute certainty of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which makes possible the absolute certainty of each of his people's resurrection. Now we see a paragraph in which Paul wants to address some of the Corinthians who have demonstrated a complete lack of understanding and belief in the resurrection of believers. Paul goes on to give several serious consequences of not believing in resurrection. He ends this paragraph by directly admonishing those in this church not to be led astray by the doubters among them. Each of you should have received an email separately from your Zoom invitation for today. And that email has a document which displays the passage we're in today in three columns, each column a different translation, English Standard Version, Christian Standard Bible in the middle, and the New American Standard. The reason this is provided today is that I will primarily be using the Christian Standard Bible for reasons that will become more apparent as we proceed. All three of these versions are really close, except for just a few grammatical um, placings in some of the verses. But it's not very much, but it is important because... It helped me to make sense of the passages, so I wanted to pass that along. If you need to grab that or you forgot about it, uh, please do so now. If you have a Christian Standard Bible with you at home, you don't really need that document. Other verses uh, that I'll be reading from today and going to 
will be the English Standard Version. As I read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 through 34 from the Christian Standard Bible, I'll begin by substituting a phrase in place of the first word of our text. And I'm doing that in order to make a little clearer what Paul will say in this paragraph today. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptizing for them? Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day. As surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now you may have noticed there's two main questions in the first two verses. And these Two questions kind of light the fuse for what Paul wants to say. The first question is at the end of verse 29. Why are people baptized for them or for those believers who have died? Sounds kind of bizarre, doesn't it? Well, since Paul doesn't exactly identify what this practice entails, there have been numerous theories about what he's actually talking about. Don't worry, we're not going to spend our time this morning going over all the pros and cons of each possibility, of which there are many. I think the best approach is to just consider the simple idea that some believers in Corinth had died, they'd lost their lives before they had an opportunity to be baptized and that others had been substituted for them and baptized in their place. The reason for doing so could have been a pastoral concern to assure surviving believers, including family members, that all that baptism signified was true for the deceased. But still, Paul only refers to this practice. He does not prescribe it. This means, for example, that the Mormons' use of this verse to argue for their practice of baptism for the dead is completely unwarranted. But what is Paul's point? Interestingly, that this practice is completely irrational if the dead believers are not raised at all. 
which is what some in Corinth believed, that the dead in Christ are not raised. Now, don't get confused. Remember that verse 29 starts with, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? The English Standard Version puts it this way, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Good questions. Again, Paul is addressing here those people who doubted the resurrection. If they didn't believe that the dead person would be raised in Christ, why bother? In other words, the practice of being baptized for the dead so that the dead person will surely be raised is pointless if the dead in Christ do not rise from the grave. Those practicing it were contradicting their own very seriously wrong belief that believers would not be raised from the dead. So, even though this bizarre practice held no merit itself, never has, never will, Paul shows those folks that what they were trying to do in a bizarre practice actually showed how double-minded they were. On the one hand, they'd made it known that they did not believe that believers would be raised from the dead. And on the other hand, this bizarre baptism practice was meant to assure that dead believers would be raised. Well, enough said. Let's get to the second main question in verse 30. Paul writes, Why are we in danger every hour. The basic argument that Paul makes here is why would he constantly put his own life in danger as he proclaimed the gospel all over the Mediterranean world if the resurrection of Christ is not historically true? Now earlier in this letter, back in chapter 4, verses 9 through 13, Paul explained what he and his co-workers have had to already endure on their missionary journeys. In that passage, we read, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Verse 11, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of of all things. Now, in his next letter to this church, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul listed what he endured for the sake of the gospel. This is an incredible list. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in the middle of verse 23. What? Had he endured for the sake of the gospel? 
labors, imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Would Paul have endured all that if there was no hope for the renewal of life through the resurrection of Christ? Why would he subject himself to so many perils if the resurrection of Christ was not true. In other words, Paul could risk his life every day because he looked forward to the day of resurrection, to the future reward that would be his in Christ for eternity. You see, this is important for the Corinthians to understand. So he in verse 31a, I face death every day. Then he actually swears to the truth or veracity of this claim in verse 31b. As surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember, Paul founded the Corinthian church on his second missionary journey and wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus on his third missionary journey, where he endured more than just stiff opposition. In Ephesus, Paul was faced with mortal danger that the Corinthians were not fully aware of yet. So what Paul says here is that it's a fact that he faces death daily. And the truth of his daily peril is as certain as the fact that he boasts in the Corinthians in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have we forgotten that even with all of Paul's correction and admonishments, he did give thanks for them and even boast in the Lord about their faith in Jesus Christ, especially in 2 Corinthians. In our letter, in, back in chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, he writes this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, 
even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and a verse in chapter 8 and a verse in chapter 9, he writes this, 2 Corinthians first, in the first place, chapter 7, verse 4. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with you. Then in 2 Corinthians seven fourteen, For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. 2 Corinthians 8.24 So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. And lastly, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 3 But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. So he uses a boast, his boasting about them to act as actually an oath he swears that what he's telling them about his difficulties and his facing death every day is true. He's not making this up. In verse 32 of our text, Paul reiterates the daily peril he faced as God's missionary, and he uses figurative language here to refer to one of many terrifying events in Asia. He writes, If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? He depicts his opponents as ravenous, ferocious animals, which is not unusual. It's done many times in the Old Testament as well. We can't specifically locate this event, but his words in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9 help us understand. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Once again, Paul drives his point home. What good did that do me, suffering that way? Paul is saying that if he suffered both physical and verbal abuse for the sake of Christ, what good is it to him without the certainty of the resurrection? Do you see what God's word is doing for us? Paul is using his own experience there's some very personal accounts in both of these letters to the Corinthians to show the Corinthians and us 
how to functionally apply the truth of the resurrection to our own lives. Is your future resurrection in Christ just an intellectual idea that you may hope in? Or is your future resurrection a certain hope because Christ did rise from the dead and will raise you on the last day? If you have a certain hope in what Christ already accomplished and how that has affected you, you can be utterly burdened beyond your strength and even despair of life itself, but you won't stay there with this sure hope. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9, why won't you stay there if you have this sure hope of being raised in Christ? Because God will use it to bring you to more and more of a place of not relying upon yourself, but on God who raises the dead. Yes, he will use our sufferings to bring us more and more to a place of not relying upon ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul's approach is to call their attention to the foolishness of ignoring the incredible significance of the resurrection life that they have. It's not something they need extra. There is no need for something more or extra. Instead, we need to drill down deeper into what we already have what we already have. Then Paul quotes a verse in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 13. He's thinking of the flippant attitude of the people of Jerusalem when a foreign army began to devastate their country. And these people, instead of seeking strength from the Lord in prayer, they indulged in partying and revelry, slaughtering cattle for their feasts, drinking wine, etc., 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 like nothing was really going on or mattered. Instead of mourning for their sins, they purposely turned away from God and uttered the phrase that Paul quotes here in verse 32, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So Paul makes his point. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's no purpose in life. Another thing we learn about the Corinthians here is that they are very prone to deception. Why? In verse 33, Paul writes, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Their doubts about key doctrines like the resurrection did not come from honest intellectual grappling over the issues. Let me say that again. Their doubts about key doctrines like the resurrection 
did not come from them honestly grappling intellectually over the issues. What Paul says is, instead, they were influenced by people who lacked integrity. That was the main influence upon them. Oh, if we could all get this. In Galatians 5, verse 7, Paul writes, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? In Ephesians 5, verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. In 2 Peter 2, verse 2, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And of course, Proverbs is full of these warnings. Proverbs 13, 20, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. It may be hard to believe, but this saying, bad company corrupts good morals, was probably a common proverb of that day. It has been traced to a poem from a Greek poet, but it might have been used even before that. When we associate with or take delight in bad or immoral company, considering ourselves to be immune to or above any questionable influences, we run the risk of actually adopting their profane language and behavior, both of which corrupt a reputable or good character. Our speech reveals what's really inside of us, as Jesus taught, and at some point our actions also reflect what's inside of us as well. Paul is especially targeting the corrupt and deceptive influences from some people in this church. And those some people he's talking to are the ones who have objected to the truth of the resurrection of believers. Now, practically, this means that these folks considered only their physical existence because that's really all they knew and all they believed was theirs. Their physical existence, which in their opinion, you see, would end in death or no resurrection. Therefore, their moral outlook on life would follow suit and gradually decline, influencing the rest of the Corinthian believers. Now, that's why Paul's last admonition in this paragraph is so very strong. In verse 34, come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. You can see, hear, and feel the depth of Paul's concern here. He is alerting all of them to the spiritual dangers already in and among their congregation. You see, this is timely and urgent. 
come to your senses right now because you are in a daze. They seem to be able to think clearly. No, they are unable to think clearly about important life and death matters. And what we see is that they were in danger of losing their moral integrity. The current thinking and behavior of some in their congregation was toxic and shameful. And it was rubbing off on others who were anything but alert. They were not applying God's truth to their day-to-day lives, especially the truth of Christ's resurrection making his raising of us a certain hope. So some questions. What have you learned about yourself this past month or so? Has the certain hope you already have as a believer of being raised in Christ on the last day helped you live now in the midst of so much change? Or are you wallowing in the I can't do this and I can't control what's going on around me kind of thinking? Are you more thankful for what you can do? Are you growing to know your God better or griping that he hasn't done what you want him to do? If God is revealing your heart's true wanting condition. You know what that is? That is really God's mercy, which none of us deserves, because it's helping us depend more on him. Suffering is used by God, as Paul writes, as we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 1, 9, to make us, quote, rely on, not on ourselves, but on God. And he says, who raises the dead. That phrase comes up in so many places. Please bow with me in prayer. Oh God, we praise you and worship you as we discover daily your new mercies, your abundant care, your faithful provision. We pray for all those affected in our area by this virus, for their families and coworkers and friends and neighbors. Have mercy on them, Lord, and deliver them. We lift up all the people on the front lines of care Protect them as they serve in dangerous situations. We pray for wisdom for our leaders, knowing how difficult it is to make so many hard decisions. We pray for our protection and our attitudes and our witness to our community. May we live and conduct ourselves in ways that bring glory to you Our community needs your protection, and so many need your saving grace. 
Work powerfully, O Lord, and redeem many. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.